0: If you have your Bibles or your Scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke and Chapter 10. Gospel of Luke and Chapter 10. took a three-week break for our Church 101 series, where we'll jump back uh, where we left off. In uh, Chapter 9, verse 51, uh, was the turning point of the Gospel. So uh, before that, we spent most of our time... In Capernaum, um, seeing Jesus do uh, mighty deeds and miracles, uh, the key point of the gospel that he takes a turn is in 951, where he sets his face towards Jerusalem. And so for the rest of the gospel, that's where we'll be headed, towards Jerusalem uh, to Christ's atoning death and victorious resurrection. And so uh, we are going to look at Chapter 10 and verses 1 through 16 in our time together this morning. Luke 10 and 1 through 16. Uh, if you got it, say, I got it. it also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. Let's read this together. Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 1. The Holy Spirit says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, sent them on ahead of him to two by two, Into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of Peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you, and remain in that same house eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborers deserve his wages. Do not go from house to house, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. <coughs> Excuse me, heal the sick in it, and say to them, "The kingdom of God has come near to you." "'Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, "'go into its streets and say, "'Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet "'we wipe off against you. "'Nevertheless know this, "'that the kingdom of God has come near. "'I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day "'for Sodom than for that town.'" Verse 13, "'Woe to you, Chorazin! "'Woe to you, Bethsaida! "'For if the mighty works done in you "'had been done in Tyre and Sidon, "'they would have repented long ago, "'sitting in sackcloth and ashes.'" it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you and you, Capernaum. Will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who dre- rejects me rejects him who sent me. Amen. It's God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. If I were to ask you, how do you grow a church, I wonder what you'd say. If I were to ask you, how do you reach the community, what would be your response? If I were to ask, what is the mission of the church, what would be your answer? If I were to ask, what is the best strategy for church multiplication, and whose responsibility is that, what would you say? Well, as an experiment, I took to Google And I asked it, Google, how do you grow a church? And it's responses that it gave me, unfortunately, exactly what I thought they'd be. I was met with a host of different, as you can imagine, articles from many different sources that essentially said the same sorts of things. The top response was an article that said to grow a church, you should brand it, market it, increase your online presence, be active on social media, get a better website, and host big events. Another said, have multiple services, hire new staff, and build bigger facilities. Another said, create a compelling vision. Identify your target audience. Cater everything to that target audience. Create an action-oriented culture and measure progress and optimize. I don't even know what the last two mean. That's that's like... Word salad, isn't it? A bunch of buzzwords just thrown in there that maybe you'll find more in corporate boardrooms to be sure. But it isn't just Google that tries to offer answers on how to grow a church. Attend any conference or any convention of churches and you'll be told what you need to do by guys who have big old churches and think you should be like them. Flip through evangelical magazines and you'll see advertisements that tell you how to do it as well. Attend this seminar and learn strategies to grow your church. Order some of this Sunday school literature. Buy the latest technology from this vaguely Christian tech company. Pick up this new study or a book and learn more tactics to grow your church bigger and better than ever. Now, what I failed to see in these websites and through these magazines was much Scripture. What I failed to see was pointing to what the Bible says is the strategy for multiplication. What I did see was business techniques bathed in spiritual language. What I did see was that for the low, low price of $400 a month, or for the price of this book, or for the price of this seminar, or for the price of this new that, or you can grow your church too. The themes seem to be what one would think they would be, attractional, using words like audience and cater and build a bigger this or have a better that. They're programmatic, have an event or a program and the world will come and see and be entertained or they'll be impressed or maybe somewhere along the line they'll hear the gospel. But is that the way that Jesus told us to reach the lost? I wonder in all of those strategies of growth and multiplication, What approach did the son whom God sent take for multiplication? What did he think? What did he think was the way to tell people about this message? Well, we find, for example, calls in the New Testament for marketing. Do you think? For branding, for big events in the pages of the Bible to reach the world. Do you think? In the text before us we have jesus's way of reaching people with the message about himself here we see christ commissioning his followers similar to what we saw at the beginning of chapter 9 but here the commission expands past the 12 to 72 of jesus's followers and what we see here is something that we'll see the pattern for how every church and every christian is to evangelize in his name in acts and beyond in other words What Luke, who is the author of Acts as well, is giving us is not simply a story in the life of Jesus as an aside to his journey towards Jerusalem. Rather, Luke is relaying this story because he knows that in this commissioning from Jesus, Jesus is preparing his followers for his departure. Jesus is preparing them to take up the mantle of Christ to minister for the kingdom of Christ in the way of Christ for the glory of Christ. They are to approach the mission the way He approached it. With the same message that He proclaimed. And so you, my friend, must learn from this text because it is telling you that you are joining in with these 72. Yes, you. You. Are joining in with these 72 and every believer who came before you to proclaim the message that the kingdom of God has broken into time and space in the person of Jesus. And you are to do it in your town as you go and as you live and as you meet people and as you build relationships because you have been deputized with the authority of the King of the universe to warn people who are headed to a Christless eternity that the dawn has come. For Luke then, the mission of the 72 is the continuing task of the church. But understand, this is about more than growing a church. It's about being obedient to the king so that people can be added to his kingdom. That's the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is not bigger buildings, better branding, balanced budgets, more influence, more consumers, or to create more moral people who have vague attachment to the gospel. The ultimate goal is to see Christ's name proclaimed in order that more people will be added to the kingdom of God and will thus turn around and proclaim his name too. As John Piper said, worship is the goal and fuel of missions, Missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions is our way of saying the joy of knowing Christ is not a private or tribal or national or ethnic privilege. It is for all. And that's why we go, because we have tasted the joy of worshiping Jesus, and we want all the families of the earth included. Seeking the worship of the nations is fueled by the joy of our own worship. You can't commend what you don't cherish. You can't proclaim what you don't prize. Worship is the fuel and the goal of missions. So what is Jesus' strategy for reaching people? What are you to do as a follower of Jesus to make his name known to those outside the kingdom of God? It's actually pretty simple. And here we see it in at least four things you are called to do to reach your community and the world. Four things we're going to see. First, observe how simple this is first you are to go number one you are to go the passage opens with the phrase luke is fond of using did you notice after this he says after what after jesus predicted his death talked about the cost of discipleship you can just look up in chapter 9 right set his face to go to jerusalem after that he appointed 72 others And sent them out ahead of him. Now, there are already several fascinating and important things about this sending of the 72. To start with, we see Jesus expanding his mission, don't we? He's expanding it. The text is eerily similar to the one we looked at a few months ago at the beginning of chapter 9, isn't it? You noticed several similar themes, but there, Jesus commissioned only the 12 apostles. Here he gives the commissioning to a wider group of disciples, but the mission is the same. It's exactly the same. Go, heal, proclaim the message about the kingdom. The same thing he told the apostles. This shows us that the mission of going and proclaiming Jesus is not reserved for only clergy or some band of religious elite or professional missionaries. If we had only chapter 9, let's say chapter 10 wasn't even in our Bibles. Maybe you could make the case, right? That those who are given a specific office, like apostle or pastor, are, are those responsible for evangelism. But we do have chapter 10. And in it, we see those who know Jesus are commissioned by Jesus to take the gospel of Jesus to their community and the world. I mean, we don't know a single name of these 72, not a one who Jesus sent out, we know nothing about them. We don't know how long they've been following Jesus or how long they've known him, how long they've given him submission and allegiance. We don't know what their occupations are. We don't know what their credentials are. We just know there are people who had a life-altering encounter with Jesus and that his call to count the cost did not cause them to go away but brought them ever closer. And so Jesus says to these people, go. He commissions them. He sends them away. He tells them to go before him and do as he commanded. So whose job is it to evangelize today? Every person who knows Jesus, without exception, doesn't matter your credentials, It doesn't matter how long you've known Jesus. It doesn't matter if you've ever taken a course on evangelism. It doesn't matter how mature you think you are. It doesn't matter what your job is or even if you feel qualified. It's your job as a follower of this Christ to tell others of Him. As Charles Spurgeon said, it's the whole business of the whole church to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. But don't you see that? It's not just your business. It's what you've been commissioned to do. What does Luke tell us in verse one? He says, Jesus sent them on ahead. And then Jesus says in verse three, go your way, go your way. And he gave them power and authority to heal and preach. Jesus commissioned them and he has commissioned you to. He has given authority to every follower to go and preach the gospel, meeting needs and warning people of the coming judgment. We are like ambassadors who have been commissioned, authorized, and sent by our true country. And we thus have the backing of our sending nation. We've been deputized to go in Jesus' name, doing what Jesus did for the sake of the kingdom and for the good of the people. And so we go, we go to people, we go to neighborhoods, we go to needs, we go to people in need of the gospel, which is to say, everyone, everyone needs to hear the message about the kingdom because everyone needs salvation, yes? It doesn't matter how moral, upright, or well thought of, respected, and put together people seem to be. They are all equally in desperate need of salvation from outside of themselves, and it only comes from one place Jesus the Christ. And since you know him, you are to go and tell of him. But see, we have this idea that evangelism is basically a hold some event. Pass out some tracts or have a revival service or go knock on some doors and ask people if they know where they're going when they die or just build a nice building and create a worship experience that we just invite people to. Maybe we think if we just have programs and events, we've done evangelism. We've checked that box off our list until the next event or the next program. Max Stiles in his book, Evangelism, says this, we seem to have an insatiable hunger for programs to accomplish evangelism. Why? Programs are like sugar. It's tasty, even addictive. However, it takes away a desire for more healthy food. Though it provides a quick burst of energy over time, it makes you flabby, and a steady diet will kill you. A strict diet of evangelistic programs produce malnourished evangelism. Just as eating sugar can make us feel as if we've eaten when we haven't, programs can often make us feel as if we've done evangelism when we haven't. So we should have a healthy unease with programs. We should use them strategically, but in moderation, remembering that God sent, God did not send an event, he sent his son. Similarly, James Edwards says in the commentary of this passage, the mission of the 72 is not a crusade, a strategy or program, but an interpersonal encounter in which the gospel is proclaimed within the context of trusting relationships. See, we've turned evangelism, into an event when really evangelism is supposed to be a way of life. It's supposed to be something done, don't you see, as part and parcel of the Christian's living. A non-negotiable of our daily lives, don't you see? See what Jesus tells them? What does he tell them? Go your way, go into those towns before I do and tell them of the kingdom or think of the great commission in Matthew 28. You know that passage, Jesus comes to the disciples post-resurrection, pre-ascension, and says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, what? Go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all I've commanded. Jesus says, I have authority over the whole world. So I'm sending you. Now go into the nations to the whole world and make disciples. You know, another way to translate that word, go of the great commission is as you are going. In other words, you already be going, so as you do, make disciples. So you, friend, you are already going, aren't you? You're already going to your job, to your hobbies, to the markets, to your kids' activities, to go eat, to your house, to do all kinds of things as part of life. And as you go, tell people of the kingdom of Christ. See how simple it is? It's not that complicated, is it? I've said this to you before, and I'll say it again. I'll continue to say it. No one on earth, do you realize this? No one on earth has the influence that you do in the way that you do to reach the people that are in your sphere of influence. Do you know that? I'm going to say it again. I I want it to sink in here, okay? No one on the earth has the influence that you do in the way that you do to reach the people that are in your sphere of influence. You are uniquely placed where you are to reach the people God puts in your path. You see, Jesus calls them. Do you see? Look at the text again. He calls them to pray for the harvest because there's not enough laborers. And who is that you are supposed to pray to? Doesn't he tell us? The Lord, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Who's the Lord of the harvest? It was Jesus. He is sovereign over the harvest and he is sovereign over your life and he has placed you where he has not so that you can be maximally comfortable or happy and known it's so you can leverage your life don't you see it's so that you can leverage your life for the kingdom to reach people in darkness do you think my friend that you live in your neighborhood that you do by happenstance do you think you have the job you do by chance do you think you have the life experiences you do for no purpose? Do you think you know the people you do by accident? Do you think your kids are going and doing extracurriculars just because? Or is Jesus still sovereign ruler over everything? Is it possible? Is it possible? That he has sovereignly orchestrated your life to influence those who you come across? in your ordinary mundane day-to-day activities so you could point them to him. Is that possible? I think of Mez McConnell. I don't know if that name is familiar to you. He uh, started a ministry in in Scotland called 20 Schemes. And what they do is they plant churches in the poorest neighborhoods of Scotland. And he wrote in his book, Church in Hard Places, uh, about evangelism in what's called the Nidri community in Edinburgh. This is what he says. He says, in Nidri, we find that much of our evangelism discipleship gets done while giving a lift home to the supermarket or to the post office. It happens at the gym. It takes more than an event or a piece of literature. It requires actually engaging with people and getting involved in the mess of their lives. Evangelism doesn't start with doing something. It starts with who we are and how we live. It should be as natural as breathing. It's about taking the opportunities to teach and persuade people of the truth of the gospel in the ordinary flow and mundane tasks of life. I wonder, is that how you see evangelism? I wonder, ask, get an answer to this in your heart. Do you consider yourself as one tasked with taking the gospel to the community and the nations? Do you realize that God has placed you where he has on purpose? And that your life as a Christian means that your whole life is for the glory of Christ. Do you seize on the everyday places God has you in your life to leverage to have gospel conversation and build relationships and meet needs? This is our task given to us by the Lord. He saved us not so that we'll hoard the gospel to ourselves. He brought us in, don't you see? To send us out. He brings us in to send us out. He, he brings us in so that we could taste the gospel and the sweetness of the gospel and be sent out to tell others of that same sweetness, and so we go. But here's some good news, point number two. Point number two, we go, but we go with dependency. Go with dependency. Now, if you notice, this passage utterly soaked, in the need to depend on God for power and to sustain us, sustain us as we go. Jesus says we must pray for the harvest. And why? Because it's plentiful. There are a lot of people who need to hear the gospel, right? Every person in the world, it's plentiful. The problem is what? No workers. The workers are few. So we need to do what? Pray for more workers. And what is prayer, if not in an admission of weakness, And need and dependency on God. That's what prayer is, isn't it? If we're prayerless, it's because we're arrogantly going through life as if if we don't need to depend on God. But a life of prayer is one of dependence. It's a posture of reliance on God for all things. And when it comes to the harvest, we must pray because we realize that we alone are not sufficient in ourselves. We need more workers. This is an easy thing for us to picture in our context, isn't it? Harvest. Living here, you'll see throughout the year, right? Fields of crops ready to be harvested. Isn't that true? It's part of living here. Now, you look at the fields right now, and what color are they? They're white, right? They're white with cotton. Imagine if there were always ready, remember, imagine if these fields were always ready to be harvested. Like there's no down season, they're always white and ready. But then imagine you're the only one in all of South Georgia that there is to harvest the crops. Is that a daunting task? You think? Would you think of yourself at a disadvantage? Yes? Would you wish that there were more people who could help you labor for the harvest? Jesus is saying, the crops are ready. The harvest is plentiful. But there aren't enough workers. We pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest for more, is what he's saying. There's both a dependency there and an acknowledgement of Jesus' sovereignty over the harvesting. That's the humility Jesus is looking for. But there's more here, isn't there? In verse three, Jesus says that we are like lambs. What? In the midst of wolves. He's saying that the mission involves risk. He says, the world is full of those hostile to the gospel. It's full of wolves. And you are not to be like them. You are to be like lambs. There aren't many creatures, are there, more vulnerable than lambs? Do you think of many creatures that are more vulnerable than lambs? Lambs are as helpless as they come. They don't have a sort of defense mechanism like quills or shells. And they have no teeth or claws to use offensively. They can, you know, these, these dum-dums can just flip on their backs. And you know what happens if somebody doesn't come over and flip them over? They just die. You know, they just lay there and die or they're vulnerable to predators. They are 100% dependent on the shepherd. That's the point of this picture. This is a, there's a very good reason why God repeatedly calls his followers sheep in the Bible. We are to rely completely on him as good shepherd, and we are to never mimic the tactics of the wolves. Christians can be persecuted, but they must never be the persecutors. Jesus wants you to know, however, you do not go alone. As you go, you depend on him. He is with you. He is the good shepherd. He will lead and protect you. And he, if he won't take you out of your trials, we can be assured that he is with us through them. I mean, imagine if the picture was reversed here and he referred to his followers as wolves or lions or something like that. We think ourselves powerful and self-sufficient when his design is for us to be weak and dependent on him and his mighty arm. The freedom of this task is that we don't need to be strong. Don't you see in that frame? We don't need to be strong or competent because we rely on creator God himself for power and strength. Self-sufficiency and strength is a negative in the kingdom of God. We need to be weak and dependent for we have the Lord of the harvest as our champion. And once once again, we see Jesus... This should remind you of chapter 9, right? Jesus tells those sending out not to take anything with them. No money back, no extra sandals, no bag to keep extra resources. They're supposed to rely utterly on God. They're supposed to trust that if they go, that God will open opportunities for them and will care for their physical needs. So, and this, this sounds strange in a culture like ours, their comfort and safety are not to be their number one priority. Doesn't that sound strange? Come on. That does not sound right, does it? Not in a culture like ours. Aren't we told the opposite all the time? Jesus' way is different than what the world tells us because Jesus tells us this isn't about us. We aren't number one. We aren't to be maximally concerned about our own happiness and comfort And safety and ease. This is about Jesus and the kingdom. And reaching those who don't know him, says David Platt. In a world where everything revolves around self, protect self, promote self, preserve yourself, entertain yourself, comfort yourself, take care of yourself. Jesus said, Slay yourself. Says Tim Keller. Similarly, every time somebody sees God for who he is, they lose their consumer mentality. They say, I will risk, I will sacrifice. I will go, I will do whatever it takes to serve those people and meet their needs in the name of Christ. She's telling the 72 that devotion to the task rather than devotion to oneself is an absolute requirement for those who serve God. Because once again, once one begins to worry supremely about self, it is not long before the mission is abandoned altogether. How effective for mission... Are the most inwardly focused churches that you know? I mean, why would you be intentional about giving people the gospel and meeting needs if you care primarily about yourself? If the object of life is maximization of personal comfort and happiness, why would you go minister to others? Because that's uncomfortable. You won't do it. The beauty in what Jesus is saying here, however, is that you don't need to worry about yourself because He's the Lord of the harvest. In other words, he will take care of you. He will take care of you. So, what are you worried about? That he'll abandon you while you're being obedient? Why would he do that? (laughs) You're going to be obedient to the mission? He's going to reward you with abandonment? Of course, he won't. It's contrary to his nature. He will care for you because you are his and you're pursuing what he told you to pursue i reminded him of a story, the story of uh, A.W. Milne. Have any of you heard of A.W. Milne before? One person. He was a missionary from Scotland. And he decided to go to China to a people he knew had martyred every missionary that tried to reach them. He said, I know of people. They need the gospel. They've killed every, every person who's tried to take it to them. I'm going to go to them. And so he booked a one-way ticket, no plans to return. He packed what little he had, and do you know what he used as a suitcase, as luggage? A coffin. He went to a place he knew was white for the harvest, and the Lord of the harvest gave him favor in the eyes of the people, and he ministered there for 35 years. When he died, the tribe members buried him in the middle of their village, and they inscribed on his tombstone, when he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. Imagine if Milne was concerned first and foremost about his comfort and his safety. What if he worried about his success and his achievements and his preservation? What if he lived instead for his dreams and his worldly happiness? then all of those people would have stayed in darkness and never seen the light at all. What if, what if our commitment to our own comfort and ease and success is keeping those around us from the light? What if we're hiding our light under a basket because we want to be strong and competent rather than depending on the strength of Christ and His great might. I mean, what are, what are the alternatives? Either one, we try to reach people by our own power, ingenuity, intellect, and cunning, or two, we don't try to reach the people with the gospel at all. And both of those options are bad. And neither are the design that Jesus gives us here or anywhere else in Scripture. Rather, the design is for us to prioritize the kingdom by taking the message of the kingdom to people. In darkness, relying on Christ alone for power, provision, and favor. You know, another beautiful thing about depending on our triune God is that people's receptivity to the message is not up to us. Do you realize that? As one Puritan said, We knock on the door of their hearts, but the Spirit comes with a key and opens the door. Only God can change hearts. Our part isn't to change hearts. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. We must go before us. He works on their hearts. Our part is simply to be obedient to Jesus and go to people and point them to his person. We just need to be faithful carriers of the message, nothing more. God does the rest. This brings us to our third point. What about that message? Point number three, we go with a message. So 72 are to go, not take anything with them, They're to rely on the hospitality of people in town. They are to eat whatever they're given. And then look at what verse nine says. Heal the sick in the house that receives you and say what? The kingdom of God has come near to you. And then what does Jesus say that they're supposed to do if they're rejected in verse 11? Tell them, tell the town, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, see it repeated, that the kingdom of God, of God has come near. So Jesus tells them even what the message is that they're supposed to take to the people. And that message boils down to this. The long-awaited king is here. He brings a kingdom that breaks into time and space. Now is the time to respond to his gracious offer and enter in. That's the message. And you see that this message is accompanied with healings. You notice that? Why? Because those healings and exorcisms are proof that the kingdom has broken in. There are signs that the kingdom is one of restoration. That God means to make people whole and that he means to vanquish that which hurts them, whether it be sickness or demons or sin or the elements or even death. And so the message of the church is the same now as it was for the 72. The kingdom of God is at hand. It says one comment here, the kingdom is a state inaugurated by divine activity. The great transformation of the world, the promised coming of God's redemptive reign that breaks as a miracle of God into the human present. The message was and is good news, the gospel, that the king has arrived and he has brought the kingdom with them. It is the message that anyone may enter in the kingdom if they repent and give their allegiance to God's chosen king. Why do they need that message? Why go and take this message? Because every person by nature is in the kingdom of darkness because of sin. Without a move of God, without being told that the kingdom is at hand, they'll continue to walk in brokenness. They'll die having never met the restoring Christ and will thus spend eternity outside the kingdom. That's bad news. The good news is that Christ has come and invaded enemy territory, that he has inaugurated the end of the age, that he invites broken people into restoration and hope, that he took on our punishment on himself to give us new life, that his death and resurrection means the power of darkness has already been written. Their end is near and they lose, spoiler alert, quite handedly. The message we proclaim is that Jesus is king and no matter how people respond, that fact cannot be altered. Is that not what Jesus talks about when, what, the 72, when they're rejected? He says, shake the dust off their feet and tell them the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, the kingdom comes regardless of response. And if people miss out, it will be because of their own refusal. But Jesus is king no matter what. Think of the very word gospel for a moment. You know that this word means good news, don't you? And you probably also know that this is not a word Christians invented, but took from the Roman world. The good news, the gospel in the Roman world would be carried by a runner when there would be a victory in battle or when a new Caesar had been crowned. In fact, did you know this? An inscription was found in modern-day Turkey heralding the good news or the gospel of the reign of Augustus as Caesar. Now suppose someone in the Roman Empire said they don't want Augustus to be Caesar. Say they don't want him as emperor what will that refusal do? Not a thing. Because he would be emperor whether they liked it or not. The good news of the kingdom of Christ arriving on the scene is that the rightful king has landed and he intends to make all things new. That all the pains and losses and injustice and tears and sorrow will be made right in the end. That those who are far off because of sin can come near and belong to a better country and be reconciled to God, says Jeremy Treat. The message of the kingdom is not simply that God is king, but that God will come as king and set right what human sin has made wrong. This message of the kingdom, will you agree with me on this, is life-altering, world-shattering message. It's not news that one casually hears and remains unaffected by. This is not the message that if you accept it, you, you continue to live the same way you've always lived, but now you get to heaven thrown in for good measure. This isn't good advice or good tips on how to live your best life now. This isn't suggestions that have a more fulfilling marriage or more well-rounded kids. It isn't tips on how to be a more moral person or a better American citizen. This is the message that the creator of the universe has come to earth and taken on flesh so that he could die in the place of fallen and rebellious sinners in order to bring them near and welcome them into the kingdom that will one day come in fullness and restore all things. This is the message that is, as C.S. Lewis said, not merely that the king has visited our town, but that it is the king, our king, that the creator has shown up as a person, to do a new thing in the world. That's the message we tell people. Is that the sort of message one looks at and casually shrugs at? Is it? Is that the sort of message one says they accept, but it doesn't alter completely how they live? Is it? There are people you see every day, people you know well, People in your family, your friends, your co-workers, your peers, your neighbors, maybe even your kids who don't know the message of the kingdom. They're still in chains. They're walking in darkness. They're still empty, looking for anything they can to make them whole. And that's why God put you in their lives. So you can tell them the message of the kingdom. So they can hear about what the rightful king has done and will do. So that their chains can be loosed. Fred, you have the message of the kingdom. You have the only liberating message. Would you tell it? Let me ask you another way. Would it be unloving to not tell it? I mean, imagine if you heard someone had the cure for cancer and they decided to keep it for themselves and their families. Wouldn't that be unloving? Wouldn't that even be cruel? Friend, you have the message of life. What greater message is there than this? People all around you are like walking zombies. They are dead, but they give the appearance of life. But upon closer inspection... They're not truly alive because they're walking in darkness. They don't know the kingdom has come. Don't assume because they live in the American South that they know the gospel. They might not. They might have a wrong idea of what the gospel actually is and their lives evidence their alienation from Christ. Who will tell them about the Lord of life? Not breaking news. You can look around and observe that there are people in your life who are under the burden of sin. Isn't that true? Just look and see. Just look and see in our community, people are walking around under the burden of their sin and their worries and their anxieties, and they do whatever they can to rid themselves of the burden, but it remains. Nothing works to rid them because there's only one cure. Don't you remember Christian in Pilgrim's Progress? He carried the burden of sin on his shoulders. He felt the weight of shame and doubt and sin upon him, and no matter what he did, he couldn't shake it. It weighed him down and made him miserable. But then he was led to a hill, and upon that hill was the cross. Only the cross could remove the burden. Once Christian got to the cross, Bunyan writes this, he says, he ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed Fell off his shoulders and fell from his back and began to tumble, and so continued to do so until it came to the mouth of the sepulchre where it fell in, and I saw it no more. There are people where you work with great burdens on their backs. There are people in your school with burdens on their backs. There are people in your neighborhood with burdens on their backs. There are people in your family with burdens on their backs. Where might their burdens be relieved? In whom? Only in Christ and his burden carrying his shoulders. But who will lead them to the cross? Won't it be you? Here's something else we have to remember the message of the kingdom means that the end of the age is at hand, time itself is on borrowed time. If the apostles in the first century thought they were close to the end of the age, how much closer are we? And every person who has ever lived is living now or will live in the future, will in fact confess Jesus as the king and they will bow their knee to him and acknowledge his rule. But if they don't do it in this life, When they do it in the next, it'll be too late. Jesus is warning about the consequences of rejecting his offer of rescue in verses 12 through 16, isn't he? This leads us to our fourth and final point. Point number four, we go with urgency. What does Jesus do here? He says that if someone rejects you as an ambassador, what's really happening is they're rejecting him and the one who sent him. But Jesus says that it will be more bearable on the day, feel the force of this, it will be more bearable on the day of the Lord, the day of judgment for Sodom than for those who hear the message of the kingdom and reject it. You know Sodom, right? It was the most despicable of ancient Gentile cities and as a symbol of unrighteousness and it will fare better than the cities that reject the kingdom message. Jesus is saying that to reject the kingdom is the most serious of sins, Even the notoriously sinful cities of Tyre and Sidon, says Jesus, would have repented. They would have repented in sackcloth and ash if the kingdom message came to them. But these cities—Chorazin, Bethsaida, you Capernaum—you will be brought low even to Hades. Why? Because no place had greater exposure to the message to Jesus than they did. No place responded with more amazement than Capernaum, and we've seen that repeatedly. But what did their amazement at Jesus' deeds get them if they didn't accept the message of the kingdom? Nothing. Nothing. In their pride and complacency, Capernaum imagined they would be lifted up to the skies, but in reality, says Jesus, it would go down to the depths, even to Hades. And Jesus says, woe to Chorazin, woe to Bethsaida, because he is in grief over them. Don't you see? This woe formula isn't isn't a detached condemnation of them. It's a mournful cry. Wishing they would have accepted the message of the kingdom. But in the bad news of 12 through 15, don't miss the radical grace. Jesus is saying even the worst cities full of the worst people you have ever heard of could be accepted into the kingdom. if they would but repent. Grace even for Sodom. Grace even for Tyre. Grace even for Sidon. If they repented of their sins and bowed their knee to Jesus. But friends, we must see that this message of the kingdom isn't just that the king has come to make all things new and reverse the curse. It's that Jesus, in his making things right, must judge the guilty. And all of us are guilty, apart from repentance and allegiance to Jesus. All of us. All of us are deserving as deserving of judgment and condemnation as sodom entire and Sidon were. All of us have earned our place outside of the kingdom, but Jesus wasn't satisfied with that prospect. And so he came in flesh to bear your burden, to raise bodily from the grave, and he offers you a place in the kingdom now and forever. And if you give your allegiance to Jesus, rejoice. Rejoice and rest all of your hopes on this glorious Christ. But then see that, verse 16, you have the message of Christ to take the name of Christ to those who don't know him. And if they die today, and if they die tomorrow, if they die next week or next month or next year and they never gave their life to Jesus, their fate will be like that of Capernaum here. I think we forget that. This message is urgent. The message was so urgent in Jesus' time that he told them in verse 4 not to even greet people on the road because there's no time to lose. He told the man in 960 not to even bury his dad because the proclamation of the message couldn't wait. If that was the case then, what about now? There's no time to lose, is there? I need you to hear this and feel the weight of this. There are people in your life who if they died today would be separated from Christ forever. will tell them where to find life? How will they know? My friend, it's you. Jesus has given you authority and a message and influence and power to tell them the good news that the kingdom has come and to warn them that the end draws near. If you don't tell them, who will? Shouldn't the fact that Jesus saved us, even us, move us to want others to share in his love and his mercy too? Shouldn't we be moved by the fact that in our heart of hearts, we are no better than Sodom? But that grace abounded to the chief of sinners and he pursued us and he forgave us and he loved us and he brought us into his glorious kingdom. Shouldn't basking in the sunlight of Christ make us want others to feel that warmth and know Him too. This is the point, yes? That our dwelling on Christ and our awe of Him would move us not to begrudging mission or hesitant obedience, but rather our dwelling on Him and His person would move us to, to, to keep Him always on our minds and our hearts and thus our lips to share with others what we've been privileged to enjoy.